Well, I thought tonight that as we consider Christmas and Christmas Eve, that we would continue along in a series that we have been exploring together as a church here at Osterville called The Mothers of Jesus. And uh, really the idea behind this sermon series was there were multiple mothers uh, in the line of Jesus that led up to his coming. And of course, the mother that we're going to consider tonight is none other than Mary, the mother of our Lord. Let me ask you a question about Mary. And maybe you've noticed this, maybe you haven't. Why is it that with Protestant Christians, Mary seems to be like the Christmas tree of the faith? Uh, let me explain this a little bit. Have you noticed that Mary only seems to tend to come out the days after Thanksgiving, and then everybody gets all excited about her. We start talking about her. We marvel over the virgin birth. Uh, We note how young she was, yet she demonstrated faith. And I guarantee you, if you have a Christmas playlist and there's some Christmas carols in there, that that song, Mary Did You Know, comes on, and you close your eyes and you sing your little heart out to it. But then, after December 25th passes, we quickly tuck her away in a box labeled Christmas decorations and put her away. I mean, poor Mary. Now, why is that? Well, I guess I'm just going to come out and say it. Uh, Protestants tend to be a little gun-shy about Mary because we think that Certain other Christians, whether it would be Catholics or Orthodox Christians, venerate her too much. But I think one theologian hit the nail on the head when he said this. Protestants think Catholics overdo it with Mary. Catholics and Orthodox think Protestants have ignored Mary. Both are right. See, now that we've offended everybody, we can get into the story this morning. Now, All joking aside, if we make the story of Christmas all about Mary, we miss the message. But if we ignore Mary in the story of Christmas, then we miss out on God's special plan and someone who was instrumental in that plan. So I thought that we could take a look at Mary's life together today and particularly focus on the unique relationship that Mary had with Jesus. Uh, She must have been somewhere in the neighborhood of, uh, scholars think, anywhere between 13 years old and 18 years old when she was visited by the angel Gabriel. And if you've heard this story before, you're pretty familiar with the lines. Gabriel comes to Mary and says to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And uh, Mary learns that she is about to have a baby. She will call his name Jesus. Now, I want you to just get into her shoes for a moment. I imagine that for Mary, that pronouncement from Gabriel was probably the scariest message she'd ever received in all of her life. But at the same time, as with any expectation of the coming of a child, it probably felt like a special gift to her, an unexpected unique gift. Now tomorrow, many of you will be, of course, opening up presents, unless, of course, you've been naughty. But here's the thing with gifts. 
Here's how we tend to think about them. We ask ourselves a couple of questions, don't we? We ask, first of all, what is inside the gift? And then we ask the question, well, who's the gift for? Well, Gabriel unpacks for Mary what is inside the gift. She, he tells Mary about the nature of who Jesus would be. He tells Mary that he will be called the Son of the Most High. He will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Then later on he says that the child to be born will be called holy, or probably better translated, the Holy One, which is language only ever used of God in the Bible. Another story later, Mary's visiting with one of her relatives, and Elizabeth sees Mary And he says this of her, she says this of her, you are the mother of my Lord. Don't miss what's inside the gift. The one in Mary's womb is every bit as holy as God himself. Friends, this is what is category uh, shattering about Christmas. At Christmas Day, the infinite became finite. The immortal became mortal. The all-powerful one became limited. Why? Because the creator of the universe became a single cell, the smallest and weakest version of life in the universe. The unapproachable God became a baby that you could hug. The impossible became possible. This gift is nothing less than that. And we find something more about this gift when we uh, unpack the meaning of the name of the child, Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. So what is this gift for? It's nothing less than God himself coming into the world to save people. But now we have to ask the second question, well, who is the gift for? Before we answer that, let's look a little more at the story of Mary. Now consider this, um, When anyone has a child, uh, it's a very unique and special relationship, isn't it? Every child's different. Every uh, mother-child relationship is different. I mean, imagine this, though. Mary's relationship would be unique to Jesus, but she is raising the Son of God. So you would think along the way that, yeah, certain things would kind of dawn upon you. It would uh, come to your attention that this is not like any other child that you have interacted with before. And of course, Mary recognizes these things. There's a phrase that Luke, the writer of his gospel, uses often of Mary. He says, and Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them. I mean, when you learn the uniqueness of your child, you realize that the child along the way kind of tells you who they are. And as they grow up, well, your relationship to that child changes. Your role in their life changes. Uh, There's been developmental phases with parenting where they talk about first you're kind of like the child's commander. You're telling them what to do all the time and then you shift to become their coach and then you become a counselor to them and then you become... uh, a consultant. So with any 
parent-child relationship, right? That's a normal progression, and you have to admit that's difficult. If you found parenting easy, well then, I gotta tell you, you need to write a book, you need to send it into Oprah, get on her book list, and then you become very rich. But most likely, you're not gonna be writing that book. So imagine if your parenting role is difficult, now try to raise the Son of God. Well, there's three times where Mary is shown to us in Jesus' adult life, and each time that she interacts with Jesus, there's a careful defining of the relationship. I'd like to look at two of those with you. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus has been making his way through his teaching ministry, and there's been masses of people gathering around him, performing miracles. He is going nonstop in this teaching ministry. If you've ever worked like a 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, you get into the 100-hour weeks, and then you start doing that consecutively, you know what kind of physical, mental, emotional toll that can take on your body. Well, Mary goes into mama mode. She comes to where Jesus is, standing outside of the house with the brothers and sends a servant into the house and says, you need to come with me. I'm going to take you home and I'm going to care for you. You are going way too much here. But Jesus is very careful to clarify his relationship with Mary. Get what he says here. Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The message, I think, is clear here. Jesus' mission into the world superseded even his relationship with his own family. Jesus' mission, his purpose, was bigger than his own personal well-being, bigger than his personal happiness, bigger than his personal security. In fact, his mission would require more of him than just teaching nonstop. It would require him to lay down his life. You see, had Mary known the meaning of a prophecy she had heard When Jesus was just eight days old, she might have better understood what his mission was. She was bringing Jesus into the temple with Joseph, and she met an older man in the temple named Simeon. As soon as Simeon saw Jesus, he knew who this child was. He knew that he was the long-awaited one, uh, the Messiah that had been prophesied about in the Old Testament scriptures. And so he took this precious baby in his arms, eight days old, and he prophesied over the child. And then he said to Mary these words, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And get this, and a sword will pierce your very soul. How could Mary have known what that phrase, a sword will pierce your very soul, could have meant? 
when she was bringing that eight-day-old child into the temple to dedicate the child, well, I'm sure that those words came rushing back into her mind as she stood at the foot of the cross and watched her firstborn son be crucified, the son who she had received as an unexpected gift, the son that she had misunderstood along the way because of the nature of who he was, but still she loved him in a way that no, well, that a mother could only love a child. One author captures the emotions of Mary as she stood at the cross. She who had planted kisses on the brow of that little child now saw the brow crowned with thorns. She who held those little hands as he learned to walk now saw those hands pierced with nails. She who had cradled him in her arms now saw him writhing alone on the garbage dump of Jerusalem. She who loved him at birth came to love him even more in death. And she stood there in that moment and the shock of everything that was happening to her came upon her. Her son would speak and give her one last lesson about their relationship. Church history has noted that there were seven words that Jesus spoke on the cross. Uh, You can think of them like seven phrases. You might be familiar with some of them. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He said, it is finished. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But did you know that one of those seven words was actually spoken to Mary his mother, and also John, the only disciple who came by his side at the cross. He said this to them. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, he said to her, Dear woman, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, Here is your mother. What did he mean when he said that? I mean, I don't think that Jesus meant John is now replacing me as your son. I mean, can you imagine going up to someone in their grief who has lost a child and say, I know you lost this child, but you can have another child. It would be cruel. It wouldn't be uh, appropriate to say. You see, the bond between a mother and a child is unique and irreplaceable. So in the birth of Jesus, Mary felt unsurpassing joy. But here on the cross, as he's suffering, she's experiencing irreplaceable loss. So there's something more going on here. Jesus is once again redefining the relationship for 33 years, Jesus was the son that she had carried, that she had birthed, that she had fed, that she had raised, that she had sent off into the world. But now the blood is draining from his body. The life is ebbing away. The relationship between Jesus and Mary is changing. She probably stood there at the cross and said, My son, my son, my son. But Jesus is saying, no. You must no longer think of me as your son. Well, what did he mean when he said that? Well, I think the point is clear. Mary is to think of him as her Savior and as her Lord. Now we can answer the question, 
who is the gift for? Well, he is for Mary. He is for you. He is for me. He is for all people because we all need to be brought into a right relationship with God. And as you continue the story forward in the book of Acts, you see that Mary actually turns to Jesus in faith and becomes a part of the first church. I just got to say this, friends. If the Virgin Mary needed to receive this gift, the gift of Jesus' death on the cross for her sins, the Virgin Mary then you do too. And the Bible makes that clear. It says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody needs salvation in Jesus. But the good news is the Bible says that everyone can have that salvation in Jesus. It says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you know what the gift is and you know who the gift is for, then the last question you have to ask yourself is, how do you receive a gift? I think we kind of get the idea that there's a good way to receive a gift and a bad way to receive a gift. Imagine this scenario. Christmas is coming tomorrow. You have a a four- or five-year-old child, all right? And you've been planning all season long to get them the perfect gift. You've been thinking about it. You've been straining your brain and you spared no expense for this gift. You spent $600 on this gift. Isn't that wild? So this gift is so special that you're going to save this particular gift for last You're going to hide it somewhere in the house. They'll get through all the presents, and then when they think there's no more gifts, you bring it out and you set it down in front of them. Their eyes get wide. And what took you like 15 minutes to wrap, they tear apart in 10 seconds. But you don't care. Because just looking at the smile on their face as they open up the gift and they exclaim, thank you, thank you, I love it. And then... They start playing with the gift, and you're taking pictures of them. Five or ten minutes later, you decide to go off into the kitchen and get yourself a cup of coffee. But when you walk back into the room, you're a little depressed because the gift is over in the corner now, unused, and that four or five-year-old child's playing with the box and the wrapping paper. (laughs) (sighs) Ah. Well, they don't quite understand the value system of things, do they? I sometimes wonder if we don't do the same thing with God's greatest gift. You know, God planned to give us the gift of Jesus, and this plan went into motion in eternity past. He thought of the perfect plan. He envisioned it. He put it together. And the gift was costly to him. It cost him, the Bible says, that which was closest to his heart, his one and only son that he sent into the world to die on the cross for our sins. I mean, what more could you give than that? Yet each year, Christmas comes around and we tend to focus on the wrapping paper and the box. What is the wrapping paper? Well, It's all the trappings of Christmas, the decorations, the food, the music, the festivities. What's the box? Well, I think that the box is the shell of religiosity. 
Meaning, we know that Christmas should have something to do with Jesus, so we kind of bring Jesus out for a little bit and listen to religious music, and uh, we say to ourselves, well, I probably should make it into church here and there for a time or two. And of course, uh, we, we make it a point to go around and say Merry Christmas to people, because that's what Christmas is all about, saying Merry Christmas. All the while, though, the real gift is sitting somewhere in the corner unreceived, unaccessed, unutilized. Well, how do you receive that gift? Well, the Bible's pretty clear. The gift is received when I enter into a right relationship with God by believing in the death and resurrection of his Son. When I do that, I am trusting, believing, incorporating Jesus into my worldview. I'm committing to walk with him for a lifetime. In fact, the Apostle John explains a reason why he wrote his gospel. Uh, there's many reasons people might write a book. Uh, you might write a book to tell a good story, but he said his reason was this. These things are written so that you what? May believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Can I ask you? Have you ever received the gift? Have you ever placed your faith in Jesus and trusted your life to him? I mean, why just play with the box? Why just toil around with the wrapping paper? Why not receive the gift, and get the full benefit of it. Let me just invite you for one moment to bow your heads with me. I just want you to reflect on what I just said as the worship team comes forward. As you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I want you to consider just one scripture. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friend, there's nothing magical you have to do. You don't have to come running forward to the front of the church. You don't have to uh, stand up right now and say, I trust Jesus. It's a heart transaction. It's a belief that you commit to God. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Friends, I encourage you to do that. Have that conversation right now. And if you're having that conversation and, and you would like to talk to a pastor, that Connect card is there for you. You just take that, you place it back in the basket, and we'll be sure to get back with you. Let me pray.